Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello and welcome back to Series 3 of Bat Chat from the Bat Conservation Trust. Today we're in Cumbria with Rich Flight, who organised a study of bats in the Lake District Fells. I'm Steve Rowe, a BCT trustee, and if you're a returning listener, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening to Bat Chat, welcome along. Episodes are released every second Wednesday from now through to the spring, and you can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat, that's all one word. As we meet each of the guests in this series, you'll hear stories from people working to make a difference in the world of bat conservation. People who care about individual species, people who concentrate on one particular part of bat ecology, and people who are working with bats at a landscape scale. As well as keeping up with the latest news and hearing from people in the world of bats, we hope that you'll be inspired to get involved because bats need our help. In this episode, we're with one of those people who has been looking at bats at a landscape scale. Today, I'm in the Lake District National Park in the north of England with the chair of Cumbria Bat Group, Rich Flight, who undertook a study called Bats with Altitude. So it's another episode, and in typical Lake District fashion, it's slightly drizzling, as it always is. We're in Newby Ridge, which is South Lakes near Windermere, and I'm sat in a grassy field with nocturnals chattering behind us with Rich Flight. So Rich, can you just introduce yourself and how did you get into bats and what's the day job? So I'm Rich Flight. I am currently a a self-employed consultant ecologist. Um, So I've been doing it for 10 or so years, I think. But I got into bats, um, I suppose originally at university. So I did my dissertation on Debenton's bats, basically because it was one of the few dissertation topics on the list it involved live animals and doing stuff with animals, like ecological stuff. A lot of it was all lab-based projects, so I picked that and nothing about bats at the time. And uh, kind of got into it a little bit then, and, but that was down south. I used to live down, down south, and this was at Swansea University. And uh, then I moved up here, up to Cumbria, and I wanted to get back into ecology, having spent a bit of time in outdoor education. And um, yeah, found the back group, really, and got quite interested in it and uh, realized that there was I guess there's work to be had I now have my own little company which is just me which is I absolutely love because it's I just potter around like now you know in the middle of the lakes climbing some trees looking for bats um, doing this and that and just um, doing little little jobs in, in a rural setting really but then obviously the back group side of things have been quite important and I've been involved in the back group since day one so I initially trained for my um, volunteer roost visitor licence and uh, I'm now the chairman of the South Cumbria Bat Group. So I now try and do try and do as many little projects as possible, but volunteers is always a, an issue. 
Um, so it often ends up being me going out, playing with bats, having fun, just inviting random people. What's the distribution of South Lakes? Where, which areas do you cover with that bat group then? Yeah, Cumbria is a difficult one because we've got these inconvenient lumps in the middle um, that would make travel very difficult. I mean, Cumbria is quite a big county anyway, but getting from one side to the other is notoriously time-consuming. So really, Cumbria, we have South Cumbria back group, which we used to be Westman and Furness, which nobody really knows where it is, so we changed the name, um, which is essentially take the middle of the Lake District, middle of the mountains, and go downwards, and that's us. And then you've got Cumberland back group, which is the same level, but go north. And then you've got the West Lakes, the West Cumbria, which is just the Wild West, which nobody really covers, um, which, is, which is a shame, you know, because it's like some lovely bats over there. But um, yeah, not really covered, unfortunately. So if anybody lives over the, over the West Lakes and would like to get into bats, then let us know and we can help you start a bat group, maybe. I didn't know your dissertation was on Dorbys. What did, did you No, what did you do? I did feeding ecology of, of Dorbenton's bats. So I did the MBMP surveys. Oh, That's yeah. what I did. So five sites around the Bradford and Avon and Trowbridge area. Um, and uh, which it's these days now seems a complete waste because I did, I was in Bradford Avon Trowbridge, which is a haven for rare bats. And I did it on Dorbys, which you can still find up here. And now I'm in an area where I can't find horseshoes, can't find Bechsteins, can't find Barbastels. So what species have you got in the lakes? In the lakes, we have uh, eight resident species. We've got uh, noctuals, common soprano pipistrels, uh, brown longids, and then we've got uh, naturas, whiskered brants, and daubs. So we've got a couple of vagrants. Um, so uh, Lyslers and Nathusias have been recorded in Cumbria. But uh, as far as we know, there are no roosts, which is weird because especially for Lyslers, because you get Lyslers on the Isle of Man, you get them in Lancashire, you get them in the borders, you get them in Yorkshire, which are all the surrounding counties, and we don't seem to have them resident here, and I don't know why as such. I'm not looking hard enough. Well, yeah. <laughs> I had a conversation with John Haddo once, I think, at a conference dinner, and he said, well, I think most people are just uh, mis-IDing them as noctuals, but I intently look at every noctual recording I get just to check whether it's the Lyslers, but... I don't know. Maybe we're not looking hard enough. Maybe we just need to do a project on that instead. Have you always lived in the lakes? I mean, you said... No, 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 no. no. Moved up here about um, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, so no, I, I grew up in Wiltshire. Um, moved to Dorset for a few years to work on an outdoor centre. And uh, then after that, uh, moved up here. To the wastelands. <laughs> Isn't that wasteland? It's lovely. <laughs> but it's well. The thing is, I, I used to the, the outdoor centre was on a cliff top, overlooking the uh, English Channel uh, in, near Weymouth. It's like absolutely stunning. But I couldn't afford to to live there, to, like because we lived on site. So you don't want to move somewhere that's not as nice. beautiful, really. Yeah. So I was like, okay, where can we move that's beautiful but is not as expensive? Oh, the north. <laughs> that's not as expensive as the south let's go north so we're just, we're some friends down the road who uh, um put us up and we've never left basically so you've been pretty busy for the last few years you've been doing a project called the paper's called bats with altitude um which was a uh, lisa whirlage um play on words that she kept telling me i, I should call it um so i did in the end uh for the working title was bats in the fells so the, the mountains the hills around here are called fells yeah um so it's for, for years it's people called bats of the fells in my head but yeah the, the article were called bats with altitude so what's the project consisted of 
Okay, basically it was a speculative project really. Uh, let's see if we can find out whether type project. So let's see if we can find out whether we actually have bats in the mountains. Essentially was the was the start of it and then anything else we can find, find out from, from that point. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite into the outdoors. I, I like uh, hill walking and climbing and things like that. And so I had an affinity for the mountains and, and, and those kind of uh, habitats originally. Obviously I was getting more and more into bats. Now I was starting to think, well, do we actually get the bats up there? We, we rarely are out in the mountains at night. You tend to go for a day walk and you come down at night. So you don't, don't tend to see. And so I started asking the question and then Chloe Bellamy did her um, PhD in the lakes and so her, that was a uh what was that was a habitat suitability uh model of of the lakes some of the sites where she uh kind of randomly selected happened to be at the tops of mountains and uh so when she was doing that she detected a few bats not many but a few and so that raised the question we, as a bat group we were like quite interested by that that was oh that's very interesting you know it's an area we technically cover but don't look at very often um so it was just an interesting uh, find. But then I started thinking, okay, right, well, Chloe's found a couple of bats up there. Um, what extent do we actually have them? And I think at the time I was just looking for a pet project to do and it, was a bit, it seemed as good a idea as any. So I wanted to find out whether we had them up there. So I started off with a, a few little trips up there just at night, just to, um, just to see if we can find them. And I kind of quite, quite audaciously started off with a, wasn't a proper advertised activity but I did advertise it locally and a couple of families uh, you know, decided they wanted to come along and at this point I didn't actually know if we were going to find any bats so we went up into the into the um, hills at night complete with kids who were staying up late and we went to Stickletarn anybody knows that it's quite an easy route up but it is 550 meters up in up in the hills and uh, and we just kind of waited uh, and it was a beautiful night it was a lovely walk anyway even if we hadn't seen any bats but yeah we waited and we waited and we had detectors and we had nothing to start with and some went down and still had nothing and I started to get really quite nervous that basically I'd waste every time and this was going to be a completely pointless project and then as always the first bat zoomed past and uh, we were around the stickle tile itself so I figured that was a good, good focal point they might turn up at yeah, we got a few pips, and then a Dwentons uh, turned up, or maybe maybe a couple. Can't remember. It's years ago now, um, and yeah, it was a it was a proper success, and we we had we had the bats. So I had my confirmation that um, bats were indeed um, up there in the mountains. But then it's a question of right, okay, how much and where and why and yeah, all the all the kind of details that you don't know. So just to explain the altitude you're working at, I know you said 550 metres there, but what sort of altitudes is your starting point? Yes, yeah, so the Lake District Fells go up to about 1,000 metres. Okay, so, so Scarfell's 980-something of them. Um, but the majority of them really lie between probably 300 and 700 metres, I would say, the majority of what you class as like the Fells. So with the project, I wanted to try and ensure that I was covering a habitat which... Uh, was unique in terms of not something that whilst I'm out doing bat surveys of people's houses and the like um, would be a similar habitat so what I was basically looking for was above the tree line really um, in in the lakes the tree line is around about 530 meters I think it is um, so I was looking to get up there so I decided to basically limit it to 500 meters or above and that would mean that we potentially would get some areas that were uh, had still have some trees around them but actually a lot of it would be beyond the trees 
and would be quite open and barren and therefore a more unique landscape. And if we found bats, you could say, well, they are foraging in an area which we don't normally get them in. So for people who haven't been to the lakes, what sort of habitat is up there at that sort of altitude? So they're actually disproportionately quite harsh environments. Um, being on the west coast, we get uh, the brunt of the weather. We get a lot of wind and rain coming in. And when you get up to that kind of altitude, um, it does turn to you know sleet and snow and hail and things like that. And so it is a really quiet, it's a very windy habitat, a very rainy habitat, and, and, uh, um, and there's no trees. Uh, so there used to be trees, um, but we cut them all down to build things and, and, and you know, do industry and stuff like that. Um, and so none of our fells are, are treed these days. So they are windswept and arid, and there's not much vegetation either. So we've got lots of sheep as well, which keep all the vegetation down. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's, they, they are quite barren and remote to some extent. They're beautiful, don't get me wrong, I love them. Um, but they are, you know, in terms of wildlife, they're, they're a harsh place to live. If you're going to live up there, you need to find your niche, you need to find your um, habitats to live in. And when it comes to bats, I think that's quite difficult. There are crags. Um, so there are quite a few crags up there with uh, crevices in them um, and there are some caves not many there's probably more mines than caves because the the, the stone isn't the kind of stone that which naturally develops um, caves it's not limestone it's it's you know, granite and uh, igneous rock other than that you're looking at yeah outcrops of rock with little fissures in them so it's yeah it's a hard place for for bats to roost in and then if they're going to fly up into them you've got a you know flying 45 degrees uphill to, to like 500 meters and that was one of the big things about um the study is to whether bats are coming from ground level or lowland level uh, and coming up to the hills or whether they're roosting up there so have you been going up with bat detectors all the time or have you been using statics to do it yes yeah, so statics was the way forward so uh, as i said the first few times i went out i literally just went up like i did went up and camped there a couple of times um and took detectors with me but it's really labor intensive and really um I mean, obviously, just to get up there, you're looking at some some of the locations. You're looking at you know, an hour and a half to just to walk to the location, uh, and then either you camp there or you have to walk back down in the dark. It's just logistically, it's very very difficult. So I you know, quite quickly realised that I needed another method, uh, and this is actually a few years ago now. This is you know uh, the survey book is 2016 and 2017, so it's not not that recent actually. It's only recently I've just written out that's all. Uh, statics were starting to become a lot more widely used and Anabat Expresses hadn't long been on the market so we uh, managed to get a grant from uh, the lovely Na National Park, Lake Dixon National Park um, and uh, that meant we could go for, I think we already had a, as a back group maybe two Anabat Expresses and I think the back group then funded another one and the National Park funded four I think if I remember rightly. So we ended up with seven which, is, which was great because that meant that we, a number could be deployed at any time, basically. And it was, yeah, it's purely based on statics. So um, I was getting volunteers, um, and so I advertised with both the back group, but the back group's quite, you know, uh, restricted distribution. So the, the Cumbria Wildlife Trust fortunately helped me put out the message, and a whole bunch of their members basically said, yeah, yeah, we, we'd be up for helping. They uh, went out and, uh, and put the detectors out for me. I did, I did very little, I have to say. I kind of... I did that whole coordinating thing, but actually didn't go out very much on my own. I, they, they did it for me, which, which was very, very useful. Sam, how many volunteers do you reckon were involved? So we had uh, 20 volunteers, I think, in total. Um, but as with all kind of volunteer things, you know, some people went out lots and some people went out hardly at all. 
Yeah, we had one person in particular, Jay Newport, who did 23 of the tetrads on her own, um, which, uh, yeah, so, you know, 23 different locations around the lakes um, to, to, to take these detectives to. That was, you know, and retrieve them as well. This is two trips, obviously. So she was very committed. So she was uh, my star of the project. So how long are you leaving them out for at a time? Well, it all depends on how long, well, kind of depends on how long the batteries last, doesn't it? Um, so they were left out for longer than they needed for, essentially, just to make sure the batteries ran down. I think Anabat Expresses tend to last for about two weeks. I think the most we got was 20 nights out of it, I think, which was pretty good. The, the, the worst we got was one, uh, which I don't know whether the person didn't change the battery or whether it, went, it was faulty, but yeah, I've got like half a night's worth of data and then it just dies. Um, but um, yeah, around about two weeks is probably about average. So you've got no trees at that height, so how are you securing the detectors to uh, stop yes, them being interfered yeah. with? When I first took a static up, I did strap it to the uh, Lake District um, Ski Club's uh, ski toe. That was like a structure I could, I could bolt it to. It was like, oh, great, that's great. But then I realised there's not really many ski toes or anything around in the lakes that I can attach things to and secure them. So the for fortunately, with Anabat Expresses, they are waterproof. So what we did is we just buried them, essentially. Um, so sometimes they would just be in piles of rocks. Sometimes they'd be under moss. Um, and with literally just the microphone sticking out to, as, as an object, which is great because it really disguises them well. If you do it well, you literally cannot see them unless you know where it is. What's not so good is that actually when you come back in two weeks' time, you sometimes don't know where it is either. So you spend a, a several um, yeah, fraught minutes wandering around going, oh, no, I've lost it or somebody's stolen it. And then you realise you're looking at the wrong pile of rocks. So yeah, I did give, them, I give my uh, uh, volunteers expressions. Sorry, that's the... Uh... <laughs> For listeners at home, there is, a, there is a literal steam train going past us at the moment. <laughs> if, you, if you picture uh, the railway children uh, <laughs> and that kind of thing, that's, <laughs> that is where we are right now. They go past. Um, yeah, so I, I don't, we didn't lose any. Um, uh, we had a, one, I think, that uh, developed a fault. Whether that was because the water got in, I don't know. But they're pretty good. I mean, I've, I've had Anam Expresses that have been flooded for 24 hours in uh, culverts and they still survived um, with a tiny dribble of water in them. So they're pretty good at being waterproof. But yeah, it was just important for them to make detailed notes as to where it was so they could find it when they came back. So how many locations did you survey and how did you decide on which mountains you were going to wander up? I split the, the Lake District National Park into um, tetrads of um, three kilometre tetrads. Um, I then highlighted all the ones that had ground of above 500 metres. Okay, so we ended up with 80 tetrads that um, ha contained um, habitat that was above our requisite 500 metres. And then it was just down to the volunteers. This thing, when you're dealing with volunteers, you can't be too prescriptive. You, you know, you've got to go with what they can achieve. So we had this online form um, and you know, we had a system where they could take the detectors from one person to another, to another and uh, then sign them out and pick which tetra they're going to um, and make sure that it was recorded on the online form so that if anybody else wanted to put a, uh, put a detector out they knew that that one had been used and so on and so we, it was very good we didn't have any uh, accidental double ups uh, people always chose a tetra that nobody else had uh, looked at and it was just down to where they could get to really so we did have a bias um, the majority of our surveyors were from the east of the lakes and therefore um, the eastern fells were covered more than the western fells. As I say, you know, the west of, the, the, of Cumbria is um, yeah, a bit more remote to some extent. So, yeah, we ended up covering in total 47 
sites out of the 80. And that was over two seasons, but mostly that was 2016. And then we just did a little bit of extra stuff in 2017. So how many survey nights is that in total then? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, in terms of nights that the detectors were recording, I think it's around about 650 um, nights they were recording. They're obviously out for much longer, but the, as I say, the batteries died. So, did you, so A, did you get bats? And B, which were the most numerous species? And what were your interesting results? The main crux of it was to see whether there were bats. And obviously I had the inkling, having been up there and found bats already, that I was going to get them. So the other thing I didn't mention is that I had been up to the Coniston copper mines as well um, uh, in the winter, and we'd found hibernating bats up there as well. Just a couple, but you know, it, it meant that I'd got bats in the summer, I'd got bats in the winter, and so therefore... And copper mines is, yeah, it's about... Again, it's about five, six hundred metres up there, I think. And so I was fairly confident we would get bats. Um, it was just a question of what and when. And I didn't expect to get all species because you kind of think certain species can fly quite a long way, but certain species don't like to. So I didn't expect to get brown long-eared bats, for example, um, because it's so open, no trees, and such a long way from the habitat that you'd expect to get them. But as it turned out, I've got every species that we get in Cumbria. So all, all eight of our resident species, um, I think we got. Now obviously myotis, especially when you're looking at zero crossing, is very difficult to tell uh, the difference. So I did record virtually all myotis as myotis, as opposed to sp splitting them out. Where it was obvious, I did split them out. So that's things like natras and dorbent and yeah, social calls. Yeah, yeah. But then the, I was always, whenever I did that, I always had that nagging doubt in my mind of, okay, so I think this is obvious, but then if you've got a species that is flying in an atypical habitat, how is that going to change its uh, echolocation? Am I, am I actually looking at a whiskered that's now like, sound like a uh, natural? Uh, yeah, so I was, it was only when I was really confident did I split them out. So that means that particularly whiskered and brant are massively underrepresented. Yeah, so common, common pipistrels by... by by far and away were the, the most common, which actually, for me, was a bit of a surprise. I mean, you had compips uh, first, then it was generic myotis, which obviously will be split out, well, could be split out if you could do, um, into their individual species, and then soprano pips. Um, but yeah, I was surprised in the difference between soprano and commons, um, because you kind of think of sopranos being quite water-loving uh, bats, and there's a lot of water up in, in the fells, you know, there's, it rains a lot for a start. Um, there's a lot of streams, there's a lot of tarns, a lot of boggy ground. And yeah, I kind of, and, and here, I mean, uh, those people listening down south would probably think, well, that's, that's quite normal. But actually here we are in that crossover uh, territory where common Asprana pipistrels are equally abundant in Cumbria. So when I go out and do a survey of a building, um, I'm just as likely to get one over the other. And then think uh, when you go up in Scotland, you're more likely to get your Sopranos than common. So we are at that kind of crossover point there. So to get such a big weighting for commons uh, showed a definite habitat preference. I'm just speculating, really, um, when it comes to why, really, because I have no evidence to to explain it, other than the common pipistrels maybe being more um, opportunistic, and maybe the the because soprano pipistrels like water, and they are quite small watercourses that come down. Maybe they're just not big enough to be a pull. Obviously, the tarns are quite you know can be quite sizable up in the up the hills, but yeah, no, it's a tricky one. In terms of other species, yeah, we say we the myotis in general. We definitely had dubentons up, up around the tarns, which you'd expect. Um, and there were occasional natteras, 
um, but not many, I would say. And then, yeah, a lot which were probably probably uh, uh, whiskered and brants. The, the hibernating bats we had in the in the mines, they were um, whiskered brant, whiskered brants. I think probably brants. I think uh, that's a few years back. And then just in line with Chloe's uh, research, which again is something that kind of surprised me even when I read her stuff, is that noctuals uh, weren't very common up there. Um, and she found that the noctuals would definitely had an affinity with lowland areas, which kind of does surprise me in terms of the physiology of a noctual bat. You think, well, they're a big bat. They've got strong flight muscles. You know, they could fly against the wind. You wouldn't have thought it would be an issue and they fly quite high naturally, you'd think they'd be up there, but they, yeah, we, we got a few. Naturalist is interesting because you're above the tree line and there are woodland specialists, so yeah. that, that in itself is interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. And this then therefore kind of leads on to what they're doing uh, up there. Um, and that, that became the next, next uh, question, really. So initially it was like, right, let's do we get bats. Okay, tick, got that which bats to get. All right, we've got all species, great, tick, done that. So then, as you say, it kind of begs the question, right, what are they doing up there? Now, we definitely had foraging bats because they're feeding pulses. And, and let's be honest, if they're up there for any length of time, they're going to be foraging. But when we, and I say before I did the study, I had found a couple of hibernating bats um, up in the caves or the mines up there. So I wonder whether uh, there are certain species which go up there and habitually forage for example, maybe the common pipistrels, the Bentons maybe, because the habitat you know, can be exploited. But whether there's some species who we only encountered when they were doing their late summer, early autumn, uh, swarming hibernation investigation kind of activity. And maybe there is an element of commuting from one, one area to their hibernation location. Certainly around here, uh, the main hibernation site that I study is Link Pot and the Easegill area, which is on the very border between Cumbria and Yorkshire. And it's a moorland site and it's, it's not as exposed and extreme as the top of the mountains, but it is a barren moorland. And it's just got these, these limestone pots in the, in, the, uh, in the ground, which go into like a massive cave system. And yeah, you look, you look there and we get uh, naturals and we get brown longeds and we are quite some distance from decent woodland. You get odd little scrubby trees, but not not the habitat you'd expect to get so they obviously do have to pass across uh open areas to get there and so um there is potential that that's what they're doing uh those few naturas and brown longers that we're encountering maybe that's what they're doing up there whereas the common a common and soprano yeah um and the the dobentons bats potentially they are going there and more habitually foraging up there so when you're saying you're getting passes, how, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Are you getting hundreds of passes in a night or are you talking one or two passes? What's your sort of yeah, average? It, it varied massively. So you would get, you'd get whole nights where you had nothing um, and you'd get sites where you had very little. I mean, we had whole sites where you had nothing. So um, we, had, we had bats on f far more than we didn't, but there were definitely sites where we had, had nothing. We talked about elevation before. There's, there were the highest... Um, bat that we recorded was at 615 meters i did have two or maybe three sites that were higher than that one but they recorded no bats so the highest bat i recorded was at 615 meters which isn't it isn't ridiculously high but obviously the higher you get the more barren it does get i mean you get to the top of somewhere like uh, scarfell and um it gets really like slaty and remote and, and horrible so yeah there were areas where we got no bats at all 
Uh, and then there are areas where we got absolutely loads. And that, again, led me to think about um, the swarming behaviour. So one of the sites where I just turned up just loads of them was kind of around a quarry uh, and next it's in, 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 near the copper mines again um, so you've got this quarry and then there's the mines near it and it's just you know floods and floods of bats or bat calls but that way um and so yeah potentially we'd get thousands of calls um on one kind of survey period basically so it varied massively but i think the majority were you know 10 calls a night kind of thing and did you find any sort of correlation between there being lots more calls in sort of sheltered areas like quarries or, or where there were areas of large amounts of vegetation compared to really windswept sites or anything like that? No. <laughs> Disappointingly, no. <laughs> it was frustrating. So I did do, I tried to do some stats on the habitat. So I went back, I'd, I did ask my volunteers to record the habitat, but it kind of fell by the wayside. So what I ended up doing is looking at the location on like a GIS and an aerial plan and uh, splitting up each site oh well splitting up the sites into how close they were to certain features so how close they were to footpaths to watercourses to water bodies to woodland and to buildings and I wanted to find some connection but I couldn't there was no no obvious connection which in the article I say is probably not due to there being no connection it's probably just due to the yeah my poor stats ability put that way yeah I there's definitely a, a connection with elevation. Okay, so go above a certain height and you, you drop, you stop getting bats, basically. There's definitely a connection with temperature and rainfall. Okay, so where we had warm nights, you got more bats. Where you had rain, you had less bats. But that's that's all basic stuff. We know that already from um, from just doing any surveys. There isn't any connection between uh, footpaths at all, and, and, that, and that I think makes sense because at the time that they're out, there's nobody around. So it doesn't really matter whether footpaths or not. And there, is, there definitely is a connection with water, water because I've been to the tarns and they hang around the water. So well, the trouble is, I think, um, I didn't... No, nobody really picked locations slap bang on the tarns because they're too well trodden. So you, during the day, you get loads... On a sunny day, you will get hundreds of people going up to certain areas of the lakes and they will hang around the tarns and they will go swimming in them and stuff like that. So I think all my volunteers were a bit nervous about putting detectors too close to tarns. So therefore, you're getting bats passing from one place to a tarn and that's what you're picking up. You're not necessarily getting the tarn as the focal point. But I don't know. It was statistically wasn't robust, maybe. That's the, one of those things, isn't it? You get, get to the project and you go, well, this needs more research, this needs more research, this needs more research. And from one study, you decide that actually there's another four studies that you need to do. Are you going to do them? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I've, I've, I've moved on um, to other things. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm getting involved with the uh, students from Cumbria University at the moment, um, helping them with their, their dissertations. And so I've tried to push them towards it to, to, to answer some of the questions that uh, I haven't answered. But uh, I think the idea of romping up the hills back and forth all summer didn't appeal to some of them. So yeah, <laughs> one year I'll get, I'll get some sucker who will, who will agree to, to go up and down the hills for me. Um, I know you said you found evidence of all the bat species. Did that include the two vagrant bat species no, as well? No, no, no. Um, nothing that I could say w was definitely them. So certainly, certainly there's no enthusiasts because um, I think they would be uh, fairly easy to, to um, see on the detector because cause they're open, out in the open. Um, they're obviously using a lot of low, you know, the pips were using a lot of low frequency calls. 
Um, so there would be no reason for an enthusiast to be crossing over into common pipistrelle kind of uh, frequency. The Lyslers, I don't, I still don't think so. I mean, the, the, the large bats were few and far between anyway, and, let's, and to be honest, around here, large bat equals noctual. Um, so I was able to look at them with quite some detail and I had nothing that would suggest a Lysler to me. So yeah, again, drew a blank. I'm just not very lucky with them. So do you think the bats are roosting somewhere up there? And they said there are mines and caves, probably more associated with this time of autumn, winter time of year. Or do you think they're coming from the lowlands and flying up there? So I think it's a bit of both, but I think it's more the latter. So one of the things I did is I compared the first bat that we had of each species to the mean um, emergence time of the bats. Okay, um, so I call it M, M, M set, the mean species emergence time. So I looked in the literature, looked at what, what's the average time that each species emerges, and okay, now which when's the first recording we get of the uh, these species? Um, and the theory being, obviously, if your bats are appearing on the detectors around about their mean emergence time, then they must be roosting somewhere nearby because you know they've, they've got there pretty quickly. And some species, like common pipistrelles and dolbentons and I think spiny pipistrelles as well, um, we got them quite early on um, in the uh, in the evening you know definitely before you would expect them to be if they're flying up from uh, from the low levels so therefore the assumption is they are roosting there some of them are the vast majority of them didn't know so the vast majority of um, of the species were there was a lag there was a at least half an hour maybe 40 minutes maybe an hour a lag before you got them after their uh, mean emergence time which therefore suggest that they're coming up from the lowland areas and, and uh, feeding up um, in, in the hills. Because, you know, you'd assume they're probably foraging on the way, they're going to take the time. Um, that was the other thing I looked at, like, um, kind of the average, um, you know, flight speed of a bat, which is quite hard to find. I don't know anybody who's actually done it. I can't find it. Wooden Trust had it on their website. I just believe them, basically. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, you kind of think, well, if the bats are roosting say a kilometre away, are they going to just go hell for leather, uh, like a bat out of hell type thing, um, just to get to the site, or are they going to meander, feed a bit on the way? You can think, think it's probably going to be latter. So that, that, that raises the question, why do they bother? Um, it's a lot of effort to get up into the hills. Um, if, if you've got perfectly good habitat down in the, in the valleys, uh, why would you bother to, to fly all the way up into the hills um, to, to feed up there? And that was kind of like, yeah, another bounce, bounce off question. And again, I've only got theories about it, but there is definitely food up there. This is a thing, obviously, animals that will exploit a niche, exploit a habitat if, if there's resources they can, they can get hold of. And so anybody who's been up in the lakes, anywhere in the lakes to be fair, but, but up in the mountains in the evening, you get bitten. You get, there are insects aplenty. Um, and so in the boggy areas, the tarns and stuff like that, there are lots and lots of insects, which therefore means there's an unexploited niche if no bats are going up there at night. If you go out during the day, you will see wheat ears, you'll see meadow pipits, they're all picking off um, uh, these insects during the day. But at night, who's eating them? Well, the bats. If they can't roost there, they have to um, come up from, from the low levels. So. You've got this unexploited niche, okay, okay, fair enough, that's fine. But then that begs the question, which ones are making the effort to go there? Because it must still be more expensive. You know, if there's plenty of images down on lowland levels, which there is, because again, anybody who's 
been camping in the lowland levels knows you get bitten down there as well. It begs the question, right, which bats um, got there? And therefore, you kind of think, well, I know that I think Leeds University have done work on Dalbentons and the male bats and potentially young uh, bats being displaced up the valley into the less favourable areas um, by potentially more dominating maternity roosts um, who are more keen to get off to get their food in close proximity and the males get displaced to the to less good areas um, by um, grumpy mums basically um, and so maybe that's the same here maybe we've got a situation where the um, the males are heading up the hill um, where they can exploit it because they can because they don't have to go back and feed anybody uh, they don't they, they can be out the whole night feeding up in the hills and then come home uh, in, in the morning and, and that's fine for them. But for a, a female feeding babies, that's not an option. Nice. Rich Flight, it was great speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. And thank you to Rich for meeting me on that drizzly day back in the autumn. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll find a link to the full published study that you've just heard about in the journal British Island Bats, as well as Rich's social media links. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we launched BatChat's first ever competition. Children's authors Emma Reynolds and Angela Mills have kindly donated prizes. Angela has donated a copy of Bobby the Brown on Geared Bat, signed by both Angela and Chris Packham, and Emma has donated a copy of her newly released book, Amara and the Bats. To enter the competition to win one of these brilliant books, all you have to do is write us a review about this podcast, BatChat, and the two winners will be picked at random at the end of this series. Not all podcast apps allow you to leave reviews, so if you're an Apple device user, leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts app, which is already installed on your device. If you're an Android user, you can leave us a review on the Podcast Addict app. And if you're not listening to this on a mobile device, you can write your review on the Podchaser website. Instructions of how to leave your review in each of these places can be found in the show notes of this episode. Remember, we need to be able to contact you if you win. So when you leave your review, make sure you give us your Twitter or Instagram handle in the review. If you don't use these, drop us an email to comms at bats.org.uk with a copy of your review. We're only able to post the prizes to addresses in the United Kingdom. And if you missed any of that, it's all in the show notes of this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with John Russ talking about his new book, Bat Calls of Britain and Europe. And I'll leave you with a taste of what's to come in that next episode. I'll see you then. And he said, what you'll be doing is you'll be putting little red flags on Orkney voles, um, letting them go in this enclosure and watching them all summer. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I don't, think I, could, I don't think I could spend all summer doing that. Um, let's find out what this bat one is. Um, so I went to see Paul Racy and he was quite enthusiastic. He said, it'll be absolutely brilliant. You'll be out, you'll be on a rubber dinghy. Uh, on the River Dee and the River Don, going under bridges with a torch, trying to find mating bats. And I thought that sounds a bit more interesting, really, than looking at Orkney voles. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.